listening to Package Your Genius, a conversation designed to give you clarity on your calling and serve as a catalyst for your career. I'm your host, Amanda Miller Littlejohn. She's done some amazing things in her career and our conversation really delves everywhere from personal branding and academia to the importance of authoring and writing down your ideas to how erasure is such a threat to so many people of color and how we have to use storytelling, journalism, and visibility to get our stories out there lest we be erased. So it's a powerful conversation. I hope you will be as inspired while you listen as I was while I was interviewing our guest today, Dr. Alyssa Richardson, a journalism professor at the Annenberg School of Communications at USC. Enjoy the interview. Welcome back to another episode of Package Your Genius. I'm excited to have on the podcast today a professor of journalism, a journalist herself, and just an all-around amazing woman who I've had the pleasure to learn from and learn with over the last, gosh, I would say decade at this point. Um Dr. Alyssa Richardson is a professor of journalism at the University of Southern California, and she is also a graduate of Packager Genius Academy. So that's always fun where those worlds collide. But um, welcome, Alyssa, to Packager Genius. Thank you for having me, Amanda. This is an amazing platform that I love. I love listening to it. So it's great to finally get a chance to be on here with you. Well, I'm excited to have like a professional journalist and a professor of professional journalism here on my journalistic platform. So I have to be on my best behavior and give you, (laughs) give you, pull out all the tricks. (laughs) Um, So Alyssa, you and I met, gosh, well, you, I don't know what your recollection of meeting me is, but I remember very vividly meeting you or seeing you rather. It wasn't so much that I met you so much as I experienced you (laughs) in (laughs) summer of, I think it was 2010. It was San Diego. NABJ conference. NABJ conference. You were presenting on, I don't even, I think it was digital, online media, online tools, blogging, I feel like you had people up there writing stories, publishing in the workshop. They People couldn't keep, keep up with you. Um, <laughs> and I was just in awe of this little person who was talking so fast and was so cheerful and had so much energy and passion for journalism. And, you know, that really stuck with me since experiencing your presentation and then obviously becoming acquainted with you professionally and through the academy but back then you were what were you doing were you a journalist because now you wear several hats um Mm -hmm. you are a professor 
and you are an author in progress. You're reporting on a, a big book project that we'll get to later. But what were you doing back then? Kind of tell us about your career journey. Yes, I think back then I was doing what a lot of us were doing. We were trying to figure out what journalism was doing and where it was going. A lot of us were trying to either stay employed or transition out of the newsroom because we figured it wasn't for us anymore. Or in my case, I figured out that I wanted to experiment with news a little bit more. And being on that news cycle, having to be on deadline every day just wasn't going to work. There's no space to really innovate when you have a story to file when, as I was working in daily, every day at five, sometimes two and three stories are due at five. So there's really not that much time, or at least there wasn't back then, for folks to sit down and say, hey, what are the new mobile journalism apps that are out right now? How's the, what's the best way I can tell a story using my cell phone, but um, kind of make a, a good picture out of this? Because a lot of times when we were trying to do it in the beginning, the pictures weren't so great, the audio was bad, there was really a lot of tweaking a lot of visits to Radio Shack and a lot of tinkering on the um, iTunes App Store and things like that to make journalism look good with a phone. And so mm -hmm. when I kind of realized around 2009-ish that this was going to be the new frontier in storytelling, um, I completely just left the newsroom, freelanced full-time, and took on a full-time job as a college professor, whereas before I kind of had my toe in the water as an adjunct teaching a class here or there, um, I was really blessed enough to get a um, full-time gig at an HBCU in Maryland where I was working. And so it was through those students really that we began to experiment with mobile journalism and uh, create our own lab. And we called it the Mojo Lab back then. And mm. we were very fortunate to win a number of grants like through the Knight Foundation and through our own school. And then we started to get invited around the world, you know, to go to um, Africa, South Africa specifically, to Morocco. Um, we were invited to Europe, to Berlin, to all kinds of places, really, once this caught fire with me really trying to evangelize that, hey, you don't have to have an expensive camera to do news. This really lowers the, the barrier of entry for anyone who wants to tell a story. And here's how you do it well. So that's how I ended up at NABJ that year. I had um, applied to be a presenter and got accepted. And I said, there's so much I want to pack into this workshop. So as you could tell, I was really trying to rush through that 50 minutes I had with you all. It was not good, knowing that it would lead to, thank you, that it would lead to this huge, you know, career mo move for me, this big pivot. So prior to NABJ and prior to you, as you touched upon, and we'll dig into a little bit more, so prior to you becoming this mobile journalism evangelist, what was your vision for your journalism career? You know, you studied journalism, went to school for it, spent a lot of time on that path. And as you said, you worked in newsrooms. And what was your goal when you set out uh, after after college to become a journalist? Who who were you emulating? Who did you I want to be like? didn't know what I wanted to do, who I wanted to be like. I started out as a biology major, actually, biology pre-med. And I went on that interview, Amanda, to that med school interview. And that's when they showed us that anatomy and, phys and physiology lab, the AMP lab, as they called it. And the students there were dissecting a human. They were actually doing a lesson 
on the anatomy of a person. And when that man rolled out on the table, I nearly fainted, whereas everybody else was running up to the front and they were like, let me see, how are you opening up the cranium and this and that? And I was just like, when can we move on to the rest of the tour? And I told my parents, they were laughing. They were just like, how did you get this far in your career and not know that you hated blood? Like, we know you hate you hate blood. We knew that you liked the lab part of it, but you know you're going to have to deal with sick folks, right? And I said, that part had never really occurred to me. <laughs> so I got really sad because I thought, wow, I've spent all this time being an intern at FDA, working in a laboratory, and I had you know dreams of wearing that white coat. And then senior year, I thought, I really like writing about this a lot more than I like seeing sick people and seeing folks in pain. And I think it was that last internship I had at a children's hospital in New Orleans where I was working in the neonatal unit because I wanted to be a neonatologist. And I had a baby pass away on me. And it was a baby I was supposed to be in charge of in terms of every day coming in there and holding them in the incubator mm. and keeping them warm. And I came to do my job that day and he was gone. And so I thought, I don't ever want to get attached to people not being well or people, mm. you know, just passing away and it being like a perfunctory part of my job. Because everybody in the unit was kind of like, you know, what happens in here? and You're going to have to toughen up. So I thought maybe there's a way I can report on health that would wow. keep a little bit of narrative distance in between me and people who are hurting, but still allow me to amplify their voices and amplify the issues that are making them sick or making them not well. Because I still cared, but I just knew it would take a huge toll. It takes a different kind of disposition to be able to work that closely with pain and death and not be afflicted. So that's how I do in health journalism. You said, you, you said so much just in that recollection of moving from being a pre-med student thinking about going to medical school to experiencing both you know anatomy and physiology in a way that you were not prepared to experience it but then also experiencing death and Instead of fighting against your nature and saying, well, let me toughen up as your colleagues told you to do, you knew that that was not in the cards for you and you smartly made a pivot. And I think that speaks to just the ability uh, or the, the skill of knowing oneself and not fighting against your nature. So I have to applaud you for that because so many people, you get that far in the journey and you just say, well, let me suck it up. I don't really like this. Or I found out that this isn't something that I think I can do. How can I fit myself into this box just to make it work? And I love that you said, no, I'm, I'm not going to toughen up. Cultivating that tribe around you who is going to encourage you to be yourself is important because I was really sad at that time because, as I mentioned, I was a senior and I thought everyone else is getting their acceptance letters to med school. And I hid mine It said Howard University at the top, everything that you've been working for for those last four years. And it was in a folder. And everybody's like, did you get in yet? And at Xavier University of Louisiana, that's like the number one school in the nation at the time for getting African-Americans into med school. So we got T-shirts when we got in. There was like a huge to do. So everybody at that time was talking about 
the letters? Did you get them? Did you not get them? And so I think um, when you talk about branding and having to really rebrand yourself, I first had to convince myself that I could be this new person, that I could say, even though I've been on this track for the last, I don't know how long, because pre-med is so long, I'm going to now pivot into journalism and health journalism specifically. And so I think when I wrote that letter, the personal statement to um, Northwestern for grad school, I focused on that. You know, I just said, I know that I'm probably not the likely candidate. I didn't major in English, um, but I do know how to write. I do know how to tell some stories. I've been on the school newspaper and I know a whole bunch of stuff about health that I'm not ever going to get to use now <laughs> that I could probably pass on to your readers and to, you know, different audiences. And I got in, I think from there, that's when I started to see what I could do with the career and started to say, okay, maybe I'll just emulate um, people who have kind of went their own way in journalism. And I started to really study journalism entrepreneurs. And I had my first internship with John Johnson, who was the publisher of Johnson Publishing mm -hmm. Company and which publishes Jet and Ebony magazine. And just working with him every day, Amanda, was amazing. When he was alive, you'd have to meet with him every day at 1 p.m. and pitch news stories to him. And so if I didn't get what I didn't get in undergrad and what I didn't get in Northwestern, I got from Mr. Johnson because he would either say real fast, yay or nay. He would like cut you off in the middle if it wasn't a good story and you'd have to talk fast. And I was really glad that, you know, I observed my peers and what would get them cut off. And I just made sure, OK, I'm going to do like one or two sentences and make sure that I can pitch something good. And he trusted me enough, you know, to do a cover story as an intern, which was huge because I thought, you know, I just got here. I kind of had imposter wow. syndrome. Like I didn't know if I was really supposed to be here. I'm like, I fooled all these people into thinking I'm a journalist and I'm really a scientist. What is going on? And um I ended up getting into Johnson Publishing and writing a lot of stuff um, because they trusted me. They allowed me to. And that really gave me the confidence to then put out my shingle as a freelancer and freelance with Self Magazine and Oprah Magazine and a lot of other places that um, at the time were really looking for um, writers before the industry shifted so much toward digital. Right. So you were full fledged in your writing career. How tell us again about that pivot into academia and you know what was that journey like and how has it been because you're still in academia you're a professor now you've moved across the country when I met you you were in Maryland now you're in California so what has it been like transitioning I think that folks don't talk about it enough in terms of the freedom you um, I think because when I was in the newsroom, I was working so? those odd shifts that we all get where you don't have your weekends and you maybe have like a Monday or Tuesday off. And I remember thinking in my early 20s, this is not going to be sustainable 10, 15 years from now. And I have a family and I want to travel and I want to see things. And then when I worked in magazine, more often than not, you are not allowed to write for a competing magazine. And so sometimes I'd pitch something and they'd say, no, that's more of an X kind of story. And I think, well, I can't publish it over there because now I'm going to lose my job from here. It's a conflict of interest. And so to me, I thought, what kind of job can I have that will allow me to have the flexibility of a freelancer and that I can publish wherever I want, but will give me some of the security I'm looking for and that we were all talking about, you know, during the Obama era in terms of like health insurance and 
you know, being a new mom, those kinds of things, that's important. And so I thought, you know, I know I can't do a nine to five um, during these weird days. Um, I know I want to travel. And so that's how being a professor kind of appealed to me as I looked at their lifestyle. When they go on conferences, they're more often than not in international cities. Like you mentioned, San Diego, the school funded that, you know, um, as a freelancer, I would have had to fund it. I wouldn't have been able to go to 10, 15 conferences a year on my own, I would have ended up gobbling up whatever I made in freelancing to go to a conference. But when you're a public intellectual, the school really values you going out there and sharing your ideas. That's part of the job description. And so for me, um, them saying, yes, we will pay for your travel. Yes, we'll make sure that you have um, enough books or the right software that you need to do whatever study or story. Yes, we will, um, if you need some seed funding, for new equipment because you want to look official when you go talk to someone, we'll buy it. And that's when I thought, where has this job been all my life? I didn't know there were places that would pay for you to travel, buy you equipment um, as a journalist, give you space to write because you only work maybe two days a week in terms of like appearing in front of a class. But the rest of the time is very structured on your own. And I was used to that as a freelancer. And I thought, I could do this. I could pivot again. And this time have time to experiment not only with where journalism is going with the mobile piece, but also write what I want, for whom I want, when I want to do that, because I don't have to be in a newsroom every single day. And so for me, just knowing my personality, it worked best for me. I know some of my friends are like, I don't know if I could, you know, stay at home three or four days out of the week. I'd go crazy. I have to be out in the world and interviewing people. And that's why, again, it's what you said. You really have to know your own disposition because even though I present as an extrovert, I'm very introverted. I like to think a lot and write a lot. And so I, that is a good mix for me to be out in the world two or three times a week publicly, but then kind of retreat and think about where things are going in media and where things are going for us as a nation. Mm, I love that. So now that you're in academia and you've you've served at several institutions at this point, uh, how do you feel personal branding factors into academia? Because I've heard different things from different people. You just mentioned a part of the job is to be a public intellectual and share your ideas, which is, you know, it dovetails perfectly with personal branding. But then I've also heard from people who felt like their institution didn't want them to shine too brightly um, because, you know, it's a team effort or it's a group and, and you shouldn't be a shining star. But in terms of your career, how important has personal branding been? It really causes me to think about how social media has evolved. I think in the beginning, in the early 2000s, I would say between 2004 when Facebook went public for everyone and between 2006 when Twitter started, Nobody really knew what these platforms were going to be. We really didn't know how much impact they would have for our lives. And so they were seen as toys. They were seen as superfluous things that people were wasting time on. And I know a lot of times um, in my early career as a professor, I started in 2006 and I came out saying out the gate, these are things everyone's going to need to know how to do. I experienced a lot of pushback from more senior faculty members who one, maybe didn't so much understand it, or two, understood it and thought that it was just for recreation. And so in the beginning, I really had to temper 
what it is I was posting and how often I, you know, broadcast what it is I was doing on social media because it was kind of met with friction in the beginning. It's, well, shouldn't she be writing an academic paper? Like, why is she on Twitter? <laughs> you know? And I think that as time has gone on, I've come to think right. of social media a bit differently myself too, not for those reasons, not because I've experienced that pushback in the beginning, but now I'm looking at it as all these things come out about social media's platforms and what they're doing with our data. I tend to think about it as a labor issue. And so as I've shifted um, from a journalist to a full-time academic, I still keep with me the way I used to tally my worth. And the way I used to tally my worth as a freelancer was by the word. I'm paid by the word, right? So when I pitched a story for a magazine and they told me that's $2 a word, I thought, great. How many stories do I have to write to be able to survive this, this uh, quarter, right? So now when I think about social media, it's very difficult for me to turn that off because I think mm -hmm. you want me to give you 140 characters now, 280 characters for free? about you should just put stream of consciousness things on here or to engage in arguments with people <laughs> when I really could have a more meaningful conversation by phone. I just think that so much of the social media platforms these days are really benefiting and profiting off the thoughts of women of color. I'll just be plain about it. You know, I'm a black woman and I think that so much of what we have created has been hmm. taken. Um, and if not for social media, people wouldn't even know it was taken. For the example of Me Too, in the beginning, that was credited to Alyssa Milano when Tarana Burke, who had been w working in that space for 10 years, had to have friends and allies come to her aid and say, no, 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 this has been around for a while. And Alyssa Milano was really gracious about it and said, I'm sorry, you know, I didn't know that there was someone here. And so that's why to me, social media has become such a double-edged sword because yes, while it does allow us to provide correctives to certain narratives that attempt to exclude us, it also takes such advantage of um, everything that we're creating a lot of times without any remuneration. So when I think of like the biggest movements that have occurred in this decade in terms of like Black Lives Matter or Oscar So White, those are all started by Black women, those hashtags. And in the beginning, those women were in danger of being erased. And so I think what I work actively toward now as an academic is to raise questions about what are we doing with the social media? How do we want it to be used if we're women of color creating this content? And if we know that we're not getting paid by the word, how can we think differently about the value our words um, take on in these kinds of spaces? And so I don't participate on Twitter as much for the reasons that I've outlined there because a lot of the professors I know and really love in terms of like their writing and their books, they're not on social media. They're not on Twitter. They're not on Facebook. And when I sit down and meet them and talk to them at conferences, we have the best conversations and they explain the same thing to me. It's my labor and my, my labor has value. My thoughts have value and I don't want to cheapen them by giving it away. That is a really interesting perspective. And I think especially when it comes to social media, um, we do have to keep in mind what are we putting out there? What are we saving for our more, um, I guess, valuable work, our paid work, our books, our talks, etc. And I think social media is a big piece of personal branding. But beyond just Twitter and Facebook, you know, you have 
created a brand and created a reputation within academia that's allowed you to travel internationally. You were a fellow at Harvard in 2014. And I feel like, you know, all of these opportunities, you're, you're writing a book now that comes from people knowing who you are and knowing about your expertise and knowing what you're about. So how have you been able to attract opportunities through your brand, like the fellowship at Harvard? I love people. I think it's why I wanted to be a doctor in the first place. And it's what drew <laughs> me to journalism and what's now kind of driven me to um, bringing up this next generation of storytellers. And it's meeting people face to face. For me, the old fashioned way that's worked for me. I don't know. Um, you know, other people, it may work differently. You know, other people may have great success with social media and for their industry, it may be imperative. So I don't ever want to suggest that for some people in, in their dispositions, in their careers, that it won't be necessary. But for me, um, there's been nothing to compare to face-to-face -face interaction with folks, especially because of the things I write about and talk about, because of the things I research. I think there's no replacement um, for me sitting down, talking to someone, looking into their eyes, kind of trying to understand where they're coming from and vice versa. So for me, um, conferences have been tops. Again, um, being a professor has allowed me to go so many different places. You know, just last year I was in Prague lecturing and at those conferences, they're international in nature. So I try to go for the highest, biggest conference in that industry and get in. And then once you apply and they typically have like only 10, 20 percent acceptance rates, once you get in and they really like your topic, that's really your pitch. Right, Amanda, like what you teach us about. That's really your chance to in a room full of anywhere from 15 to 200 mm -hmm. people tell them everything that you would be spending 15 to 20 hours a day telling them on Twitter, right? This is what I think. And so I think when it's in that space too, right. it gives you a little more authority and it allows people to, who you are trying to target anyway, to be all in the same place at once. And I think very early on for me, especially as I became a mom, I started to want to get more bang for my buck. A lot of times when I was on Twitter, in 2008, 2009, it felt like I was like yelling into the ether where I'd say something and get a bunch of follows or a bunch of likes, but I still wasn't really talking to the people I wanted to talk to. But through conferences, um, professional ones, I was able to meet so many interesting people. And then the thing about that is that I kept in touch afterwards. So whether it was just dropping them an email and saying, hi, how are you? I saw you had a new paper out or I saw you wrote a book or I saw you have a talk in my town. Can we get coffee before you you know, give your lecture, give your speech? Or if, if it was a journalist, I saw a new story that you just did. Um, you know, can you come and talk to my students? That was one of the things that really you know, flattered people and allowed relationships to flourish. So I think for me, it's still been the one-on-one -on -one communication with folks that's been um, just unmatched in terms of opportunities coming to me. For instance, the job that I have now I went to a conference. Um, it's a teacher nerd conference that happens every year for journalism and mass comm professors. And I went as a PhD student. I wasn't <laughs> even finished my degree yet, Amanda. But I said, I know this is the conference that all the top administrators and hiring deans go to. So I'm going to just go. And so I went to Minneapolis and um, put my uh, CV into a box. And I said, I really want to be at USC. This is the number one journalism school in the world. 
as of the rankings um, at that time and still now. And I said, I'm going to go ahead and put my uh, CV in this box and see what happens, you know. And there were hundreds of other CVs in the box. And so anything could have happened. But I stayed there and I talked to the two reps at the school. And then I went around to some other schools and put my CV in the box. And so I was minding my own business when um, I got a call one day from someone on the search committee. And they had a very broadcasty, serious kind of voice. And all oh, this is so-and-so from the University of Southern California. I was thinking, oh, my goodness. I'm like, <laughs> I have kids running around the background making noise. I'm so not on right now. But I was like, let me go like hide in the closet and try to talk real fast. And so I told my mm -hmm. kids to shush. And they're two years old and like a couple months old. They're looking at me like, why are you in the closet right now? <laughs> I literally did. So USC on the phone. I got to be quiet. I've got so, USC uh, on the like phone. They're like laughing a little bit. And that's how I could tell it was a good fit because they understood. I'm like, I'm sorry. You can probably hear my kids, but what is it that you are saying? And they think we would like you to, to apply to a position that we have opening up. And I said, okay. And they say, we have three positions that are opening up and they're just posted today and we would like you to apply. And so I thought, okay. So I applied to them. And by December, a month later, I was getting a call to do a campus visit. And for anybody who's in academia, you know that after they've gone through those hundreds of um, applications and CVs, they only invite typically three people to come to campus. And so it's between you and usually two other folks and you have to shine. And it was grueling. Wow. It was a three day affair where they wind you and dine you on that first night. But that second day, they're like, you're going to give a lecture and a job talk and meet with 25 other people individually and shake hands with students. And the whole time I was just in awe because I'd been looking wow. at this university from afar for so long, looking at all their resources, looking at all the great people that are here and just wanting to be a part of that and just inching closer and closer to that right circle of people who could get me there. And so to go back to your original question, I would just advise your listeners to say, who are the decision makers in my field? Who can get me to that next step where I wanna be? Whatever it is in your industry, do you want more you know, talks? Do you want a book deal? Do you want uh, more people to trust you on television? Whatever it is, you have to figure out who is the decision maker in that realm and then try to get in the room with them, not in a way where you're initially pitching yourself, but in the room with them in a way where they're casually listening to others who are in a position of sharing their expertise. And for me, that's been conferences. So um, for me, it was finding folks and was finding, OK, these are the folks who are doing the hiring. I'm going to give a talk at this conference and I want to be so great at this conference that they come searching for me. And so I think one of the things that um, my mom's always told me is you want to get to the point in your career where you're meeting people and you don't have to introduce yourself anymore. And I'm in those circles now where I don't have to introduce myself to other journalism professors. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm working on the next step of not having to introduce myself to the world, to other people. <laughs> I love it. Oh my God. You just gave, you gave a lecture. I mean, you're a professor, so <laughs> that makes sense. You totally just gave a whole lecture on career advancement, personal branding, finding what works for you. And that's huge because one of the things that I always preach in Packager Genius Academy is that there is no one path. There is no one way you have to find what works for you the same way 
you have to know yourself and you have to know your strengths and skills and what energizes you. You have to figure out what is your style? What is your medium for communicating with the world? And so for some people that might be Twitter, but for others like you, that is going to conferences and connecting with people individually. But everyone has to find what works for them, where they shine uh, their brightest and where they can most authentically connect and and stop trying to fit yourself into a box that just because it works for someone else. Can you share a little bit about the journey to get there? I mean, because you didn't start out. I mean, you started out in academia, but it was a struggle (laughs) at at first, right? To kind of, to find, to wind your way (laughs) to the track. I think we don't talk enough about the fact that our economy is is set up Mm -hmm. such a way that the baby boomers are not retiring. They're not going anywhere anytime soon. A lot of them are still supporting, um, children, adult children, all the way into their 30s because of the way student loans and all that kind of stuff impair them from, you know, buying their own home. There's so many different economic levels, and I'm not an expert in economics, but I just know that I know the baby boomers are having a tougher time retiring than their predecessors. With that said, that leaves so many uh, folks who are in their 60s and 70s still at the helm, and that leaves us stuck. So the 30-year-olds and the 40-year-olds who normally would have been middle management by now or who would have been moving up even into the upper ranks in many of these industries, they're still kind of idling. And I would say idling because it's not that the car isn't on. It's not that you aren't working. It's not that you aren't shining and tweeting and building your brand. It's that you're in a traffic jam. There's somebody else in front of you and they don't want to leave. And in fact, one of the things that discouraged me most was when I was applying, um, for different jobs. I wanted to really stay at the home institution where I was after I earned my PhD and just move up. And I was told by my supervisor at the time, you know, you're still young, you have time. Why don't you just do your 10 years like everybody else, maybe 10 years or so, we'll talk about you getting on the tenure track. And that broke my heart because I was thinking, I'm here, I'm taking kids to the White House. I have this Harvard Neiman Fellowship. Apple has named me Distinguished Educator of the Year. I'm taking kids around the world with me. You're going to say just wait 10 years? And then that wasn't it. This person then crafted a job description in such a way that it would exclude me. In the past, we've said um, at our school, a person could be... Um, within one year of earning their PhD, and they could go ahead and apply to the job and earn the PhD and finish your dissertation within that first year of the job, and you can still have that job. So it was really in the past, we'd written ads to attract the best and the brightest people who were just graduating, but didn't yet have it in hand, but would promise to have it in hand within a year. Well, this particular time, um, our department didn't even get a chance to vote on an ad. An ad just appeared on our university website, right? And so all of us were just so up in arms about it because the way the ad was written said nobody who pretty much is up for you know their PhD in this year can apply to this job. And there were three of us at the time who were kind of in that zone. It said only someone who has a PhD in hand can have this position. And it was only one person. And so, in effect, it was only written for one person who's also kind of a baby boomer to have that job. And so at the time, I wrote a really angry um, note. <laughs> I can't even call it a memo. It was a note. It was a missive. 
Ooh, it was a missive to the entire department. I said, you know, how dare we just kind of do away with faculty governance and exclude three promising scholars. This isn't even just about me. We have three promising scholars who are all getting ready to graduate, who could possibly have this position, who want to stay working here. What's the deal? The fact that it was never answered, like they didn't even answer it. I only got the call into the office from the supervisor who was like, you know, I totally hear you. I'm sorry if your feelings were hurt, you know, complete you know, dismissive of, yeah, just is a, an emotional thing rather, rather than a policy what? thing, which this happens so much with women in the workplace yeah. who speak up. Um, and it was, oh, I'm sorry if your feelings are hurt, but just do your 10 years and, you know, we'll, we'll take care of you. And something flipped inside. You know, it was very calm, but I thought, no, I'm not going to stay here. I'm not going to stay in a place that thinks because I'm a certain age, I can't contribute in a more permanent, meaningful way. And let's be clear, the folks who are tenure track have health insurance. I didn't at the time. The people who are tenure track get travel support. I didn't at the time. I was invited to Milan, Italy to speak and the department was just like, oh, we don't have the money. You know, so there were a number of things that made me say, this is not fair. And it's not like I'm a five-year-old saying it's not fair. I'm thinking, no, this is not, this is happening all across America right now. There are people like me who are in a holding pattern. And how much would I be cheating my family if I stayed here? Because I, at the time I had a three-year-old and a one-year-old to feed. And I'm thinking, I can double my salary mm. by leaving here. And so that's what I did, Amanda. I went, finished that degree. I put my thing in the box, like I told you. And got that call. And with that decision to make that shift, um, I doubled my salary that year. I did. I can honestly tell you that me having faith in myself allowed me to step out and identify when I was being bullied. It allowed me to identify why I was being bullied. And it allowed me also to realize that I needed to find a place that had a different culture, a kind of place that valued anybody, no matter how old they were, no matter what race they were, what gender they were. And I thought this is the place for me because I was completely myself at that interview. When I came to USC, I told them, you know, I have kids, you know, I told them I like to travel. I told them this is my research agenda. Is this going to be an issue for you that I study Black Lives Matter? And they were like, no, we love it. And so that's how I knew it was a good fit. So I can tell people, you know, if you feel like you're in a situation that you want to pivot out of, you will know your whole soul and spirit will tell you when you're not wanted in a place, when you're not. To then say, I know I'm worth more than this. You know, I know that I shouldn't be giving away everything for free. Or in my case, I know I shouldn't be working as a professor at this big university, a state school and not have health insurance and not have what I need to take care of my family. I know that I should be given a more permanent position because I've gone to school, I've done the work. And I think that a lot of us sometimes get scared to articulate what our worth is because we start to feel like, am I gonna sound cocky? Am I gonna sound arrogant? You know, should I remind people? Oh, they probably know. And it's like, no, folks are inundated with so much information these days they need you to remind them regularly why you should be there. And so now it's on, on my journey, I'm at a, a point where I'm at a place where I feel valued and appreciated and where my interests and research is being valued. And now I just have to 
continue to have great intergenerational relationships. I think one of the things that made me make this move all the way across the country, as you mentioned, on the night of my first interview, I had a retired professor or a professor who was getting ready to retire would be taking that position. Um, she's the one who drove me to the dinner. And she was telling me all about the school and why she had been there for 30 plus years. And I thought, this is great. This is a great vibe. It's what I needed. It's what the universe sent me is that all baby boomers aren't out to get you. Some baby boomers, you want to mentor and prepare the next generation or want to prepare right. their seat to be filled with someone who's going to be awesome. And so in my case, from that experience, I was really, really lucky to turn around and have older professors, older people in my profession who took me out as soon as I got here to lunch or dinner and just wanted to pour into me everything that they knew about the industry. And I think that that's one of the greatest things about trusting yourself to pivot after you are in a, in a rut, in a holding pattern. One of the things that I thought was really cool, uh, you emailed me a few months ago as a, as a way of an update after the academy to tell me that you had landed a book deal and you thanked me for being a part of that which i never fully understood but tell us about your book deal how that came to be what your book is about and how you are integrating the new role yeah well, of i definitely still want to thank you i know you're like your i don't book. receive it but i do definitely want to thank you for what you taught us in Package Your Genius Academy. You know, I was, like I said, it on the phone with you in the last year of my PhD program, and I didn't get to do all of the activities every single week, but I saved all the podcasts and listened to them again after I finished the class. And I said, okay, now I'm going to do the homework. And one of the things that stood out to me in your uh, lesson that you teach us without giving too much of it away is that you really encourage us to become authors as experts. And of all the things that you discussed, I thought, now this is something I can get behind. I really like the idea of authoring things as a way to kind of amplify my message because conferences do get tiring, you know, going from city to city and being in different hotels and just the travel and being away from my kids is hard a lot of times. And so being an author would be a way for me to express what I wanted to a lot of different people. And so one of the things that really sparked that interest in me, um, aside from your class, was speaking with one of my mentors at the University of Maryland in my um, PhD program. And I came to her one day, and um, she's a super famous sociologist, Dr. Patricia Hill Collins. And I was talking to her about my um, dissertation, which centered around the mobile journalism that African Americans were creating with um, the Black Lives Matter movement. And everybody just seemed to have their cell phone out in the moment and everybody was recording their own news. A lot of times it was bypassing what I was seeing on mainstream media. And I was in her class, which was called Black Social Movements. And I was telling her, you know, this is a really interesting way that African-Americans are using smartphones. And it's a fusion of what I was already interested in, in terms of mobile journalism. It's already what I've taught in Africa. And now I'm seeing it here being used in a different way, but it's still that same thread of wanting to bear witness to a human rights injustice. And I was having a hard time at the time convincing um, some folks at my school that this would be a viable dissertation. And I spent like 
30 minutes in her office ranting and raving. And I think I was pacing around and she was so amused and nice. And she's like, you know, everything you just said to me. And I said, yes. And she says, aren't you tired of saying it? Aren't you tired of explaining, you know, black people are interested in journalism? And I said, yes, I am tired of explaining that black people have made an impact in journalism. She's like, well, if you write it down, you only ever have to say it once. Put it in a book. I was like, oh. <laughs> Bloop. Package your genius, Amanda. And so I was like, package okay. your genius. So that was maybe about four months before you told us to author. And it stuck with me because I thought, okay, here it is that Dr. Collins is saying I need to just write it down and leave it alone. Let people, you know, put it out there and see what people have to say after. Don't sit up there arguing with everybody on Twitter. Just put it out there one time. And then here's Amanda is saying, yes, you need to have something on Medium by now. Why haven't I seen a large manifesto from you? You need to be writing. And I thought, yes, I do need to be writing. But again, in terms of like the bang for your buck, I started thinking, okay, I went through the workbook that you gave us. And I said, I think maybe I should just skip some of these steps in terms of Twitter and um, doing the medium post for now. And maybe I should just work on the book proposal and then I can come back to medium and Twitter when I'm ready to promote something. Otherwise, it's going to seem like I'm running and raving about every tragic thing that's popping up on my timeline without any cohesive argument. And so I just started writing. I started transforming my dissertation into a book and I started having lunch again, those one-on-one -on -one encounters. I started having lunch with my more senior faculty members who had written books. And I said, you know, in the tenure game, we're all up for, you know, publish or perish. So where should I publish this? I know that that matters, but I don't know how to pick a publisher. And they were all like, oh, so glad you asked. Because, you know, there's a snootiness to that. You know, they're like, it needs to be a university press. It needs to be a reputable university and all of that was Greek to me. I was like, what? I thought a book was a book. I can't self-publish. And they were like, you better not. And I was just okay. <laughs> so having those lunches helped me identify <laughs> Oxford University Press as the number one university press in the world. And I said, okay, here we go again, Alyssa. We just go aim high, huh? <laughs> so I said, let's just do it. And I wrote the proposal and I emailed it to an editor. And she says, can we do a call? And I was thinking, oh, they don't like it. But then on the call, it was total opposite. They were like, this is great. Have you showed this to anyone else? And I said, no, I just went for you guys first. And I go, thank you. Thank you. Good. <laughs> so now we're going to assign you an editor. And so then I had to polish it a, a bit, of course, because it was just kind of like the proposal I'd written for my dissertation. I kind of just pivoted it and tried to make it less nerdy. And um, they gave me their formal template for the proposal. And then I did that. And then I waited, 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 because the whole committee has to read it and vote on it. And then I got a call in April. They were like, you know, we're over here and uh, we just voted for it and we want to offer you a contract. And I like put the phone on mute and I just started screaming like this is so great. These are the people who make dictionaries. And I was just right. thinking, oh, my goodness. So after that, I just started writing. They gave me my deadline and should be out this spring. We're in the process now of editing. And that's the hard part is having a great, smart team of people pick everything apart. But it makes you be able to articulate your argument even better. And so I think that's the part that I'm on now. And now I'll be thinking of how to add in some of the social media elements. But again, um, 
I, I just have to break away from being so old school. Like for me that I'm always thinking of how can I reach many, many, many people. And so for New Year's Eve, I went on NPR and um, did an interview. It's the 10th anniversary of Oscar Grant's death. And the book was about um, basically where, how far we've come in terms of like cell phones being able to capture these things. And so when they, I was approached to be on the show, I took complete advantage of it. I said, yes, I'd love to talk about this because I think he didn't get the attention that he needed at the time because we were in the middle of a historic inauguration, right? We were getting our first black president. And so Oscar Grant really didn't get the recognition he deserved until it became a film. And so I really wanted to talk about that um, on the radio. And so the book deal, I think, is really going to lend itself to where I want to go next. The book will allow me to do some of the other homework well, that you gave us. It will now force me to condense many of its arguments into bite-sized tweets. It will allow me to enter myself or insert myself into different conversations on television and radio. And so I'll be going back over your curriculum to see, okay, what part can I do now? And just take it step by step. I love it. You have, as a <laughs> journalist has done, you've buried the lead, Alyssa. So what's the name of I'm the book? I'm very excited about it. Tell us and about the it. You want to get it. Once it bearing comes Witness out. While Black, African-Americans, Smartphones, and the New Protest Journalism. And I decided to write about this because I kept seeing all of these different clips come across my timeline of unarmed black men, women and children who were just killed by police. And I thought, if we didn't have these cell phones, would anybody believe their families? And I thought, what is the impact of looking? And I started to think more about that. Should we still look? Should we not look? What are the effects of looking? I've had people say to me, I don't look anymore because it gives me nightmares. And then I've had people say to me, I feel a responsibility to look every time because they had the bravery to capture that or somebody else put their body on the line to capture that. And so I interviewed 15 different activists who weren't the frontline shooters of the uh, video, but they were the people who picked up the mantle afterwards and decided to either continue reporting long after that initial person sounded the alarm or they are activists who are working in media spaces, like they created their own podcast. A lot of them either um, interrupted, like one, in the case of one activist, she interrupted a major presidential candidate um, to kind of uh, hijack mass media to get her point across. I've interviewed activists who created their own podcasts. I've interviewed activists who are using Twitter and social media and kind of hijack those as their own personal news outlet. And so I feature 15 different case studies of how African-Americans can use mobile journalism specifically coupled with social media to report on social justice. And I think that was really important to me in light of um, just everything that we've seen and may not have seen were it not for the cell phone. And I think that it's things that we've all, always known in the African-American community that have gone on, but having that proof was just something that was so different. So for me, I felt I owed it to the folks who dared to push record to capture what it is that they did because I started to notice that a lot of the media are fleeting. You know, a lot of this media today is designed to disappear. Snapchat is designed to disappear, Instagram stories disappear. And I started to think, Will my daughter know that 
you know, these videos existed, that somebody did this to somebody's son, that somebody did this to someone's daughter and maybe got away with it. Um, Because we can always say that it never happened if it disappears. And so I wanted to put it in book form because the digital is ephemeral these days. And so a lot of activists have spoken up on this on their own. Many of them are now writing their own memoirs, but still the memoirs tell the stories of their lives and what activated them to be on the front lines. And that's important work too. But my book, I think, serves the purpose of letting people know that you have a responsibility to bear witness to what you see, good or bad. And by doing so, you become more permanent. You become someone who can't be erased. Um, and I think that by using our mobile phones in more thoughtful ways, the mainstream media can't reduce you to a silly photograph. You know, I, I talk about in the book an instance where a teenager created a hashtag, if they gunned me down, because he was so angry that teenagers were getting, you know, featured, the most horrible picture of them was featured on evening news and not graduation photos or photos of them in ROTC uniforms. And he said, we have a chance here to reframe how people are contextualizing our social media. And so for me in the book, I make the argument that, yeah, those photos are fine to post, but you should also be very conscious of the fact that anybody can access those. And what does that mean for you in the long run should something happen that's you know, tragic? So for me, I think starting the book as a conversation, I went in the wake of um, Belando Castile's video being broadcast. I was just so angry because my daughter was the same age as his daughter and she was in the back seat. And I remember just calling up um, the press uh, secretary at my college at the time and saying, anybody who wants to talk about this, please link me. And she linked me to an NBC affiliate at the time. And I did an hour long Facebook live talking with him about just all the ramifications of this and how something has to happen. And I, all of those things just kept building, building, building toward the book. And eventually I said, you know, I can't go on the news every single night and rant about this. It's time to take Dr. Collins's advice and Amanda's advice and write this book. And so that's what it's about. It's really paying homage to black journalists of yesterday, like Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells, who reported on um, human rights injustices against black people. And it also pays homage to today's journalists who are doing that work even though they don't call themselves journalists. That's what they are. You know, you said so many gems, so many gems. But one thing I did hear that really parallels my work is this idea of erasure and, you know, becoming visible to avoid erasure. And I think you bring up a very important point about writing books and creating something permanent, creating a record of who you are, what you know, what you saw, what you've seen and heard, um, but also creating that narrative of your brand. Because so often when we have accomplishments as women or as people of color, the narrative shifts and changes and we're victims of revisionist history. If we haven't done um, our due diligence of you know, making ourselves visible and sharing our own story, putting the narrative out there that is true and mm -hmm. right and repeating it and, and letting people know we're here. 
And I think that's truly the danger for anyone who does not take their personal brand in their own hands, take their story in their own hands. You're a, you are, you are then pretty much, um, at the whims of whoever's holding the microphone or holding the pen, Absolutely. they can rewrite the story and write you out of it. It's imperative for people to first identify what their disposition is, what they feel most comfortable doing, because if they're online and they're inauthentic, it won't work. Right. So I think once they know who they are and what platform works best for them, just be natural, just be yourself and be regular, be prolific on there. And I think that, that will be the best thing that they can do for their brand is that they always have something consistent that their audience can rely on and come back to like this podcast is regular. Y'all remember when you were launching it and here we are almost 60 some episodes later, you're still doing so proud of you. And it takes takes so much diligence. Yeah. To do a podcast and to keep a podcast going and just knowing that, you like podcasts and you like that space and you like this kind of format and it's working for you, I think is what's grown your brand so far and so wide. Everybody knows who you are. And so I think that for everybody else, they can follow that same model that you've set for us. That what they're doing is authentic and that it's something that they feel comfortable doing. Yep. Find your medium, find what works and repeat what works. Really, really simple. Find what works for you and just keep doing it. So I'm so proud of you, Alyssa, and inspired by you. I continue to be inspired by all that you accomplish and all that you do and the energy and passion and excellence, really, that you bring to everything you touch. So I'm honored to have you on the podcast and to share you with the Package Your Genius universe. And I'm so honored to have called you a student, to call you a friend. I can't wait to get your book and read it and maybe host you for something where we could talk about bearing witness while black, because that is just, I mean, guys, listeners, is that not New York Times bestseller list material? (laughs) Jeez. So thank you again for sharing your story with us and sharing how um, we should all have courage to follow our own dispositions and our own hearts and that it's okay to pivot and to change when things aren't working. And I love how you said (laughs) you can feel it in your soul when it's not right. And I think we all can. So I'm going to hold on to that and pass that on to all of the people who are listening today. But thank you again, Alyssa, for sharing your story with us and for joining us on Package Your Genius. Wow. Wasn't that an amazing conversation? I'm just so amazed every time I get a chance to speak with Alyssa or Dr. Richardson, as we should call her, because she's so magnetic and so energetic and so passionate and so brilliant. And she shares her genius so generously with us. And I can't wait for her book. I I'm really passionate, though, about this idea of erasure, and I'm so glad that Alyssa and I got a chance to talk about how, in the extreme terms, um, when we're talking about violence and social justice, if you're not sharing the story, the record of that story can be erased, and 
justice may not be seen by the people who deserve it. So that is absolutely one case to make for visibility. And I think for those of us who are contributing our very best ideas and our very best work to our companies or our fields, it's important that we are recognized and that our industry is aware of the contributions that we're making. And so that's why for people who are building their personal brands, visibility is key. So there is still time for you to join me and a fabulous slate of professional journalists, a top podcaster, and other communications pros to talk about how you can get more visibility for you, right? How can you get quoted in the press? How can you get featured on TV? How can you be invited to give your expert opinions and weigh in on the issues and the matters that are important to you? Maximum Exposure is the virtual PR conference of the year. I have never seen anything like this, and we are doing it all on Wednesday, March 6th from 10.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. It's going to be amazing. There is still time for you to register. The event is free, and we'll be talking about how you can get the exposure that your genius ideas deserve. So the link is in the show notes for you to join us at this conference and I hope to see you on Wednesday, March 6th.